You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Road. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we put on our Boomer Jund hats and explore the Riveteers. We've got five new deck lists to help you go 3-2 in style. Then on the flashback, testing results with Rafine Scheming Seer. That's all coming up on this edition of Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show! Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan Online, and I am joined on this fine Monday by my guy from Argentina. It's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey, yo. How's it going, Dan? Nice to be here again. How's your big win going? Ah, it's been going well. Summer's getting uh, heating up a little bit, getting a little hot and humid. Here in the opposite, completely covered in a blanket, keeping my windows closed so my cats don't freeze, just wishing for some heat. Yeah, you mentioned that the last couple of weeks. I still, in my mind, does not compute. I don't believe that there is a winter in the Southern Hemisphere. Like, I've never seen it. I've seen no evidence of it. I think the biggest difference I have seen when it was, like, because when you're young, you don't know this stuff. And then you realize that all Christmas movies, for some reason, it's snowing. And on Christmas season here, it's freaking the <laughs> middle of summer. So you're like, something does not compute with my systems. Like, why is it always snowing? And where can I see some snow? So wait, do you have a, like, during your winter time, is there going to be a winter wonderland? Will it be? No. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't snow here. The streets of Buenos Aires. It, it snows really like once every few years. Maybe some snow one day. Hmm. It's like a quite shocking thing. Like quite <laughs> that piques the interest of everybody. But it, no, no, it doesn't snow like at all. Well, wherever you are in the world, it's a great time to be brewing. We have a good show coming up. I was going to say a great show coming up, but I'm a little suspicious of the theme for this week, to be perfectly honest. Why? It's just a good name. I mean, all right, so we're talking about Jund or Riveteers, if you prefer, if you're... I like it. Crazy like that. But when I was looking through the Riveteers cards from Nuka Pena, I had a little bit of trouble like talking myself into some of these. So we're going to see how it goes. Um, we'll talk through some of the options, look at a few new brews. And then for our flashback segments, we will tell you a little bit about how our testing went with Esper Week and specifically with Rafine Scheming Seer. I can't believe Dan himself is just doubting a whole archetype, like a whole group of stuff. You just lack faith. You don't want to draw cards. Well, I mean, that's the thing. So, like, what is Jund about drawing cards? Like, I had a whole little screed about this. I was doing my research, trying to do some soul searching, like, trying to figure out what is the essence of Jund. Because I feel like if I just put Jund, like, all caps in the episode title, we'll get more clicks than in any of our normal episodes. People love Jund, or they, they love the idea of Jund. People love Lily of the Veil. And I don't really understand why. Is that it? Liliana the Veil? I think it's Lily of the Veil, and I think it's Bloodbred Elf. Like, it's the curve. Like, it's the shin curve. People love the Thutsis into Tarmogoyf, into Lily, into BB, and then losing to the opponent of decking what they discarded on turn one and being like, this game is rigged. MTGO bug. 
Okay, so the losing is part of it, right? Like that's part of the ethos of Jund is that you got to play all these kind of classic cards and then you lost in, you know, through no fault of your own, you lost. To the game. Okay, because if a deck gets too good, it stops being enjoyable. Jund is always the good guy. I think that's why I love Nee because Nee became the mid-range good guy because how can you not be the good guy? You're playing five colors. No one's playing five colors. You're a good guy. And then you stopped. And then Omnath got printed, Brennan Six got printed, and I slowly started losing my good guy motif. Slowly turning to the dark side. Like I got too much power. <laughs> and now Shan is actually being the good guy. And yeah, you're not even playing Niv anymore in your four or five color good stuff decks. How far we've strayed from God's Light? Once Niv has died, why are we still here? All right, so we'll dive into a little bit of Jund Brewing, but before we do that, let's just get our housekeeping out of the way at the top. We do have some new patrons we would like to welcome to the Faith Brewing family. They are Joshua F., Alex S., Ryan Q., and Theoden King. Also want to give a shout out to First Turn Negator for going up a tier in their pledge. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. The price that someone will pay to nominate a card for the monthly project. That's as far as someone would go. I mean, worth every penny. I don't want to bias the vote too much. If you listen to the Friday episode, um, you heard Emmy, myself, Brian Madden, and Arun Singh, our friends from Serum Visions, going over the 11 nominees for our next month's project. Some sweet bangers on there. First Turn Negator nominated a sick card, and uh, he told us over the weekend he already 5 0 with it in one of his brews. I mean, the fact that he went 5 0 already puts the limit on what we can do, right? Like, if we gotta do better than him, what are we here for? If we have already been overtaken and beaten. First turn negator is like a gamer. He's a deadly tournament player, has great runs in the challenges. So I I don't hold myself to that standard if I'm going to outperform first turn negator. But if he says Mausoleum Secrets is the tech, then maybe Mausoleum Secrets is the tech. I know he's been working on a bunch of different decks. Yeah. So if he says that's the secret, we're just going to see what the people like. And if we have to follow their steps, we will. Exactly. So voting remains open for the rest of this week. So if you're listening, you want to get in on the action, help us decide what card to feature next. Uh, Best way to do that is by joining our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Make a pledge at any tier you're comfortable with. You'll get access to our Discord channel. We got a wonderful community there of like-minded brewers. You'll also get perks uh, like voting for cards, um, if you're interested in merch, we have stickers, we have custom tokens, we have playmats. You can find all of that on the Patreon as well. Exactly, because what a better way to follow us than to know exactly what we're playing, like down to the last card in the cyborg or the, la- or the land base that David never did. You're just going to trust our mana bases. When we say 23 lands, we trust in your judgment, everybody. It's just us putting faith in you. So what Moore just talking about here is like David, he's always sketching up this. He usually doesn't actually specify what lands he's going to put in there until like the very last minute. Well, I do that too, to be honest. I feel like that's as much as it is an important skill for brewing. It's like you know not the most important first step when just trying to figure out what you can fit into a deck. And if I don't see the lands, I feel less guilty when I dream lands, right? Because it's not the same taking out a fetch land and saying I'm just going down to twenty-two lands. <laughs> I can just no, don't trim lands. I can just trim lands without guilt because I don't know what I'm trimming. Like it's that's just not got- how this works. That's not how any of this works. That's how we end up with Jordan with 28 lands, right? You just sketch the list, find 61, 51 playables, and are like, maybe I need 52. Maybe I want my second ephemerate. And you just say, okay, I'm going down to 28 lands without actually putting the lands in so it doesn't hurt. You're like, I have 29 open slots on the deck, so I can 
trim one to put my pet card exactly in. like no those are not 29 open slots those are your lands we just didn't write them all out that's the same if they are not named they were not needed <laughs> all right so that being said let's jump straight into our brew session we are talking about riveteers or jund if you're a boomer like myself and we start with all of things what people would less expect from a boomer a run Oh, I mean, I've already, like, said my little piece about Jund, but I mean, the the whole thing about, like, Boomer Jund, hashtag Jund life, Jund them out, when in doubt, Jund them out, like, these, these sayings don't make any sense to me. And they've been around for years, like, actual years. I don't know when you first encountered them, Mord. Maybe, yeah, right when I started playing, I think Shan was the fashion, and one of the kids I started playing with, like, the only kid younger than me, was all about Absan and just the rock life. So it was like... Getting in at the time BB was all, was banned still, and all we had was six rhinons, so he was the the, the rock, the absent guy. Which was a sort of the same thing, because as soon as Renan 6 and Bloodbraided got unbanned, he started playing Shan. And he was like, no, this is so, so interactive, this is like real magic. And quoting a perfect line from, from Dan, Shan was the ultimate smooth rain deck. <laughs> I mean, I was trying to, like, figure out what it was all about, and that's all I could come up with. Like, is there a certain joy to casting Liliana of the Veil, Tarmogoyf, Bloodbraid Elf? Like, no, it's like... I, I think it's a factor of nostalgia. Nostalgia for what? For when Magic was about casting these cards? Yeah. Or for... For when they could win okay. playing just one discard, two mediocre cards, and a bit of stick. So where I'm going with all this is that if our task for the week is to brew Jund decks... I feel like Jund is the antithesis of brewing. Like, there, there is no brewing in Jund. At least Jund as a lifestyle, as a philosophy. There's no synergy between any of these cards. Not a single card in the classic Jund deck, whatever that means to you, is like the brew around card. They're all just like interchangeable pieces. They, they don't do anything per se. Yeah, in the modern era, like, it, are you hearing that howling? Or is it just me? Yeah, I'm here. It's like a mass Somebody howling. let the dogs out over. What is that? Yeah, yeah. I'm just like right, and you're just like I just look at my audacity. It's like a small line. It's like right next to here. This mic is amazing because my brain is getting torn by five dogs. Okay, <laughs> they shut up. No, they didn't. fuck them. I mean, yeah, that's what happens with most shunt cards in the already played format. But I think in New Capena there's like one, maybe two Bilderon cards, and the rest are just classic good old. Shan style of cards, just good enough to be played based on those synergies. Oh yeah, I mean, l- looking at the Riveteers Jund cards that are like available now, they're all like synergy cards. I mean, I think in Nuka Pena it's kind of like a sacrifice theme, which is kind of cool, and we'll talk about them in a sec. But yeah, Jund as a philosophy is anti-brewing, smooth brain. I don't really know what it means. It's the you know, 49% against everything, but actually 45%. And if we really kept track of our stats, it's probably 42%. <laughs> but who is counting? Um, but then there's just Jund as a description for anything in black, red, and green, where, you know, in recent years, that has been, like, a sacrifice theme. You know, so it is a synergy deck there, but that's not, like, that's not classic Jund. That's just these shot. three colors. Yeah. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> Let's talk about some actual cards. What do we got available to us from the Riveteers, I mean? So, with the Riveteers logo, so cards straight from the Riveteers gang in New Capena, we start first with, what's the name Corbal at Home, better known as Siatora. <laughs> yeah. A six mana worse Corbal means straight out of the gate, we're not playing the governor, the one true king of the Riveteers. 
Zeatora the Incinerator, the Demon Dragon, the Mythic Rare. And it is pretty cool. I mean... If only Corwald wasn't busted. Exactly. So it's a dragon that's 6-6 flying. Beginning of your end step, you can sack something for damage. And what else do you Three get? Treasures. You get treasures. Three treasures and damage. That's pretty cool, right? You can kind of talk yourself into scenarios. Maybe you're using Atsushi the Blazing Sky. Maybe you've got Magda in play. So you're converting those treasures into another dragon. But once you realize that like you've filled your deck with all these sacrifice and treasures... It's like, why were you not just playing Corvald instead? And why am I playing a 6-mana 6-6 six, six, that needs to survive until my step to do anything? Exactly. So we are not going to propose any Zeatora decks. But its second in command might be more interesting. Yeah, I hope so. Although, as I did a little <laughs> like digging, I could not come up with any reasonable uses for this card. Talking about Ognis the Dragon's Lash. So this is 4-mana, three, 3-3 three haste. Whenever a creature you control with haste attacks... Create a tapped treasure token, and we know how valuable treasures can be if you have, like, a Corvald, for example. If we have Seatora, the real Seatora. But how many decks, like, are Haste Tribal? Do you get paid off for playing Haste Tribal? Ognis itself is not actually a very good combat creature. I could imagine casting Ognis for four, attacking, getting a treasure, getting two treasures. Ognis dies, your other creature dies because it's understated as well. And the treasure, why does it enter tap? I mean, it enters tapped so that it's not, like, good. too dangerous. Exactly. So it's not good. Like, instead of completely balancing it, let's just do it, like, let's just cut off the legs. If it can't run, it's just not scary to us. And <laughs> just poor Ogni paid in the price of that. So you said you went looking around and just nothing made sense. Like, there was no good plan. Exactly, exactly. All right, so the Mythic Dragon and the Rare Captain are out, but let's take a look at some of the cards that we actually will be brewing around. Um, what should we start with, the Ascendancy or the Charm? No, I think we start with the Charm and leave the best for last, at least brewing-wise. Okay, so Riveteer's Charm. Here we actually do have several deck lists. Tell us about this card. So the Charm actually is might be the best of these cards. Not the best feel around in the sense that it's as you're going to see, just a good card. But probably the one that we'll see the most play around multiple formats. So Riveteer's Charm. A black, a red, and a green. So Riveteer's Mana. So a three mana instant, which has three modes, and you get to choose one. The first one, target opponent sacrifices the, a placeworker or creature with the highest CNC among permanents they control. Second one, you get to exit three cards, and you can play it until your next 10 step. So you can play it on your opponent's turn, and then have access to all three cards. And finally, Exile Target Player's Graveyard. So we have two amazing options and a third one because we need a three because it's a charm. Are you saying that the first two options are the amazing options or the second and third options are the amazing options? I'm saying the one and second are worth almost three mana or pretty close to three mana. And then we have an option being worth like one mana. Okay, so you actually do like this edict effect. The target opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker with the highest mana value. I don't know if I love it, but it's the same, like, it works in a similar way to Aragmage Charm, right? Like, you can, A, use it to answer against your opponent if you need it, or B, looking for answers if that's what you require. Mm. So, okay. it does a bit of both, being able to use any of those two cards on your opponent's end step. You need it to be both proactive and reactive in order to be good on itself. And the third timeline is just there in case you need it. The fact you can also make them sacrifice planeswalkers against, like, control, like, the 35, I think it's extremely relevant. So I feel like if you're putting Riveteer's Charm into a deck, you're really hoping that the second mode is the one you get to use. This is the draw three mode. Impulsive draw, we should say. I can imagine, like, 
a classic philosophically true Jund deck, you know, trying to trade resources one for one, discard spells, removal spells. At some point, both players are empty handed. They're playing off the top of the deck. You draw your Riveteer's Charm and it's like, you know, the heavens burst open and you get to draw three cards. It's so beautiful. I feel like anytime you do that, you feel like you're you're doing great. But anytime you have to pay three for the edict, you feel like, ooh, this was a cost. Like I'm paying the cost now for putting the charm in my deck. I mean, I think the huge advantage there is the fact you have a chance because if you then you if you have that chance, it means you must consider Riveteer's Charm in your deck building as a reactive spell. Like it's not taking the position of like, what spell would you play instead of Frigidaire's Charm? If you're playing Interaction, you're going to hate the times you just throw it as a removal. Because it's going to be a really cranky removal. But if it's taking the spot of something that used to be like a 2 for one like a Season Pyromancer, that was mm. always playing out of tempo because it was throwing you cards, then you like it a lot more. Because you get to use it as a removal in the worst case scenario, but it's still a draw engine on its own. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's competing with Bloodbraid Elf, like, that that's what I would take out if I were playing Jund, but I don't even know if Jund has played Bloodbraid Elf in a long time. I mean, the new versions are just going like I think no blood, n- nothing over three and four season pyromancers for Riveteer's Charm. Yeah, I mean the the most recent high finishing list for Jund in a challenge played no Riveteer's Charm, so I'm like, yeah, like you know, the the burden is on the new card to prove its worth, but you can find some five O's that are playing like two Riveteer's Charm. I haven't seen any with four that I know of. Maybe there were some. I don't know. I think the last days that Benguchi was playing had like three. So yeah, people are still on this card. At least for now. I think Spike was pretty high on it as well. I think draw three for three mana is pretty amazing. In a deck that can use most of the cards, like it's pretty close to drawing three, right? Yeah, assuming you've built your deck to play all proactive cards, right? You don't want to exile your top three, realize that they're like counter spell, fatal push, or whatever, and or like land, land, fatal push, and you only get to play one land out of those. There's a little bit of timing, a little bit of deck construction that goes into it, but for the most part, Jund decks are already built in a way to maximize the Riveteer's charm. So it slots in naturally. Um, let's start in Pioneer, actually. So here we have. No defined build to work with. I, I think mid-range is in a tough spot in general. You don't find a lot of mid-range decks, especially not Jund mid-range, uh, but there are some. So we tasked David Robertson with thinking about some of these cards, and here's what he came back with. It was like a, a, an AI, right? We just fed him the cards and are like, do your thing. Come back to us <laughs> in a few hours. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's a highly trained neural network. Um, sometimes spouting obscenities, but often <laughs> <laughs> from spitting out spicy decklets. At random times, attacking the man, attacking the play gr- the groups of MTG, saying we don't understand the patterns. Exactly. All right. So first up, a Delirium deck. Jund Delirium. We're in Pioneer now. So four thoughts used, four Fatal Push, three Traverse the Ulvum Wall. This is actually the only really Delirium card, but I think time has shown that Delirium basically just means a Traverse package. Um, three Grissy Salvage, two Dread Boars, two Bonecrusher Giants, one Bloodthirsty Adversary, one Abrupt Decay, three Graveyard Trespasser, three Fable of the Mirror Breaker, going to name some one-ofs now. These are all tutor targets that Traverse can find. We have a Murderous Rider, a Tireless Tracker, a Clothis God of Destiny, a Gloom Shrieker, one Kalidas, one Arasta of the Endless Web, one Eldor Gargaroth, one Ishkana Graf Widow. I, I saw you stopping after Gloom Shrieker because you were really close to reading Riveteer's Charm because it's only a one-off. 
Exactly. I know you are like, Riveteer's Charm? This is not a true travel one-off. Exactly. So there's also a couple Planeswalkers. Again, you need to diversify your type. That's two Chandra Tours of Defiance, and then one Riveteer's Charm, both for an instant and to get something from the new set into this decklist. Uh, I imagine we'd be playing also the Jund Trium, which is Ziatora's Proving Ground. I think David has noted that he would probably play two of the Jund Triumphs and two Fable Passages, yeah. again, to try to get that land into the graveyard for Delirium. It's, yeah, Fable Passages slightly better than the one that's than the new one. Oh, the common ones? I'm just considering gaining life compared to the chance of entering Tabled on Drone 4. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I think that Having untapped lands is, is always worth more, yeah. unless you're doing something very, very specific. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, you're right. Unless you're playing something so aggressive, you're never going to get to land four. But I don't think this is the plan here. When I saw those new lands, and I guess we should read one, because these have never seen play unconstructed. What are they called? Like, um, ah, I have no idea what they're called. Like, besides... Riveteer's Overlook is the one for Jund. Common, land, when Riveteer's Overlook enters the battlefield, sacrifice it. When you do, search your library for a basic swamp, mountain, or forest, put that card onto the battlefield tapped, shuffle, and then you gain one life. So it's kind of like Evolving Wilds, but you have to choose what basic land you get immediately. In exchange for that, you get one life. And you just go full on brain mode, you play an Urborg, you tap it for black mana before it sacrifices, and then there's tap. Yeah, so I initially thought there was no upside to these, but that line of like Urborg or Yavamaya or even Dryad of the Elysian Grove can let you get a little bit extra out of these lands. I still don't think they are playable, but it's a consideration. They're not playable in Pioneer or Modern, but I have seen some interesting screenshots from like a, like a Splendid Reclamation deck with all, a bunch of these oh. lands. I think actually Fire Shoes was playing this on Arena. He's just screwing around with different brews. <laughs> it looked pretty sweet. He was getting amazing quantities of landfall triggers. Just Robert doing Robert things. Exactly. So they're not like completely without merit. They do do something unique, but I don't think they're going to make the cut over Fable Passage. I don't know, I think just the possibility of untap means a lot more. Alright, so let's dig into the mechanics of the deck. In order to achieve Delirium, David has seeded 9 sorceries, 9 instants, 13 creatures, 2 planeswalkers, and 6 enchantments. Now you're benefiting here from the fact that several of the cards that we mentioned are enchantments and creatures. That applies yeah. to Clothis, that applies to Arasta of the Endless Web, that applies to Gloomshrieker. Gloomshrieker, for anybody that doesn't remember, it's the enchantment creature Eternal Witness that only returns permanence. Has Menace, too. Has Menace. Arasta of the Endless Web, 2 green green legendary enchantment creature spider, 3-5 reach. Whenever an opponent casts an instant or sorcery spell, create a 1-2 green spider creature token with reach. I don't love the stats on Arasta, but you can imagine if, if Ledger Shredder is the metagame, and I keep playing against this deck, I play it like twice a league now. Four creatures with reach that you can pay to drain life has to be at least a consideration in your mind. Right, I mean, any Ledger Shredder deck is almost certainly going to be playing a bunch of cantrips, and they have to give you some spiders when they take care of Arasta. Oh, wait, it's Arasta. I was thinking about the bad spider. Which one is the bad spider? Ishkana? Yeah. Oh, Ishkana's here too. <laughs> Don't worry, there, there's two spiders that's here. Why, that's why I was thinking about the bad spider. Like, I was thinking about the ability to train life and you didn't say anything. I was like, wait, I'm just thinking about the right spider. And, and then you say, make, it's going to give you spiders. Like, no, okay, that's a 3 five spider, not a 3 five spider. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the 3 five spider that gives you spiders, not the other 
three five spider that gives you spiders. Okay, okay, thanks. These thanks. are totally different spiders. The legendary spiders, not the legendary enchantment spider. <laughs> no, no, I know, no. Are they all clear? The, the, the legendary non enchantment spider. This is perfectly clear. <laughs> that makes one two spiders. Okay, got it. With Rich. That spider? Yes. That one. Okay, okay. So we have Arasta, we have Ishkana. We have one bloodthirsty adversary. This is kind of a cute tutor target. It's always fun to like build out a tutor package in Jund colors because you get to play like a bunch of one ofs that you don't necessarily see that often. But bloodthirsty adversary, because of its pseudo kicker ability, functions like a goblin dark dwellers. You can just tutor up the bloodthirsty adversary, immediately play it, kick it, recast a traverse, get another creature. So you get like a, a bonus. How does adversary work with adventures? I believe it targets the card. Is that right? Exile up to that many target instant or sorcery cards. Yeah, nope. So if it targets a card, it will not see an adventure. Yeah, it would have been really fun with Murderous Rider. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those weird corners of the rules. Um, but yeah, you guys were talking about like Maestro's Ascendancy last week. And that would work with adventures as far as I know. Yeah, that would. Can we can we can you stop tempting me with Maestro's Ascendancy? Alright, all right, well let's <laughs> I always go back to Maestro's Ascendancy. At least wait until Maestro's Week. (laughs) Maestro's Week, where we only have Maestro's Ascendancy, I think, because everything else is terrible. Yeah, I mean, as as poor as the Riveteer's options are, this is the third best (laughs) of those new shards. (laughs) Alright, so what else is going on in this deck? Well, notable absences. Grimflayer is not in this deck, and David has included a special note just for me. He says, don't play Dan's guy, Grim Flayer. No matter, how tempted you, no matter how tempted you are, shocks are everywhere. And this deck, as he's constructed it, lines up great against two damage effects. Shock, Stomp, Strangle, Flame Best, Bolt. Adding in Grim Flayers just makes all of their shocks and stomps, etc. way better than they would be otherwise. So Dan, do you feel personally named by this? Like, do you think it's like a personal attack on you? It is. Uh, it is. It's part of like a long-running war. So it's, I wouldn't even call it an attack. It's more like just the cycle of <laughs> the cycle of violence continues. We we fight because we must fight. Um, however, I was compelled to include here in our outline that Grimflayer actually did not just four zero. Let me just check on that. Oh, there's no delirium in this list. I was like triumphantly about to say this black green delirium list had four Grimflayers. It did not have four Grimflayers. It had no delirium whatsoever. Um, there's a separate list. Uh, the fourth list down has Grim Flayers, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wait on that. <laughs> I'm gonna defend my position where I have some defense, some support. Exactly. All right, so I won't defend Grim Flayer in this context. I actually like what David's saying. Uh, this this list, despite being mid range, has no small creatures to pick off. And you know, small choices like why is there one Clothis instead of the fourth Graveyard Trespasser? Well, it's tutorable. It is an enchantment for your Delirium counts. Similarly, why are we playing the one River Tears Charm? Do we actually believe in it? David has a note here that he thinks it's actually much stronger than Colligan's Command, which is the other like versatile instant you might be tempted to play. Lastly, because you now have the Zeotora's Proving Ground to make your mana a little bit smoother, you could think about putting in some more utility lands, uh, such as Boseju, into your mana base. That makes your Grizzly Salvage a little more useful. That also means that you have more ways to get that land type into the graveyard, which in Pioneer is never a given. So you have Boseishu, Takenuma, and Sogensar in those colors. Takenuma mostly seems pretty interesting as it mills you as well. So it does everything you want. The black one. That's a nice idea. Yeah, I like that. One Takenuma. I would probably play one Boseishu as well. Not 100% sure like what it's going to be targeting. but No, but it's never bad, you know? It's one of those things. You just have it in case you need it. And also yeah. a free way to beat the Angels deck. 
All right, we move on. So the list that I was going to triumphantly mention as a delirium list um, is actually a non-delirium list. This is Black Green Rock. This is from a player, Communist Wasp, uh, on Twitter. They just 5-0 and had another 4-1 as well. So they're getting some mileage out of this deck. I thought it might be an interesting point of comparison. Okay. So here we're still relying on Fatal Push Thoughtseize, but instead of dipping into red, I think this player has concluded that there are no worthwhile red spells. You can get everything you need out of black. Graveyard Trespassers, Gifted Aetherborn's Abrupt Decays, and three copies of Invoke Despair. I think that's what surprised me the most about the list. Like, just seems like such a heavy top end. Yeah, it's a different philosophy, I think. Like, the the list we just talked about, David's Jundelirium list, does have five drops, right? And they're kind of situational five drops that each do a specialist thing. But none of them are, like, raw power, right? Okay. Invoke Despair is just like, yeah, it's a cruel ultimatum. Like, I survived this long, and now I get to cast Cruel Ultimatum on you. Just carrying good old budget ultimatum. Yeah. So is that worth, I mean, playing a black, 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 black spell in your deck? Like, I'm not sure. Like, I, I haven't cast that many Invoked Despairs myself. I've seen it cast against me a bunch of times. Uh, it's somewhat impressive. I mean, the deck has only, in 25 lands, I think it only has three only green sources, which is not a lot. It has Boseishu and two basics. Everything else can tap for black. Yeah, if you were listening carefully, we only named like 25 cards. You may be wondering, what's the rest of the deck? How do you actually build like a rock-style deck in Pioneer? And if I read the rest of the cards, you'd see that it's just completely random stuff. Like, there's no... And in random numbers. Yeah, there's no synergies here. You get four Faradbulls, four Thoughtsies. Okay, that makes sense. Two Tenacious Thunderdog, two Gifted Airborne, two Ranger Class, three Arab Decay, two Bloom Command, the full placing of Free Trespasser to make David happy, three Terrorless Tracker, one Murderous Rider, and then... Two Esigas Chariot, one Braska, one Kalitas, one Sorin. Clearly the numbers have been thinly trimmed, completely studied, and it's down to a science. It's like they started with a, a toolbox package and then we're like, you know what, forget the tutors. And they just started medium cards. To feel like instead of tutors, they just played medium cards like Gifted Airborn. But that's the Jund way. I mean, the Jund way is not to tutor. I feel like this is truer to the rock life Jund life. Oh yeah, this is the rock life. You just rock them out. Exactly. I think, guys, if anyone wants to annoy David, we can just add a Discord group called Shandem. And then nothing <laughs> of what we send there makes sense. Like, there's no context. I'm going to mute that channel. <laughs> and then he just suffers in pain because what does Shandem out mean? He doesn't know. We don't know. But he doesn't need to know. We don't know. I also included here in our notes, just for comparison, another take on Jund Delirium. This one is from Claudio, one of the top Pioneer players. He played this actually to a 5-2 and two finish in a Pioneer Challenge a couple weeks back. He had built out his Traverse Toolbox pretty similarly, but a couple different choices. Two Fable of the Mirror Breakers and one Unlicensed Hearse. Unlicensed Hearse, you know, we've been talking about that card for weeks now. Can you just put it in your main deck? You know, if it's just an artifact that is sort of good in a lot of matchups? Seems like it might be, besides it's giving you the only artifact for Delirium, so I really like that. Also playing a one of Takenuma, as we said, one of Oseishu. I think Fable makes a ton of sense. Like It, it doesn't have any job to do specifically here. It's just generic value, filters away <laughs> some of your one-offs. And... It's the season Pyromancer of Pioneer, right? You just have it. And it gives you some cover. Like it, You might 
be exposing yourself to criticism by playing these weird cards. But if you play Fable, people will be like, oh, okay, this is a serious player. You can just discard them if you don't like them, don't worry. Like, <laughs> exactly. this, is a, this is a study deck, clearly. A mastermind. Nobody laughs at you for playing Fable. The numbers are so weird in the creatures. One adversary, two Seder Warfighter, one Skus, three Bone Crusher, one Bloom Seeker, two Trustbuster, one Glotis, one Tracker, one Kalitas, one Ishkana. I mean, it's very similar. I think one of the key differences is that Claudio was playing Satter Wayfinder, where David was playing Grizzly Salvage. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think Seder might be better, ironically. I mean, it gives you a block for the turn. I don't know if it's better or not. It's an interesting question. I, I tend to favor creatures when I can get the same effect, but maybe that's just the Yorion player in me. All right. Next up, we have... Riveteer's Jund in Pioneer, and this is also like a port of the Jund life concept. What if you just had to play Shun. Jund midrange? No synergies in Pioneer. What would you end up with? Well, David identified Riveteer's Charm as like the one card that really gives him, I wouldn't say confidence, but some hope for this strategy. So he's playing the full four Riveteer's Charm in this list. Just the full playset and hoping it's going give, to give him enough value, right? Exactly. So what are we trying to cast here, Emmy? So we're playing the what anyone could guess. Four Final Push, four Thought Seas. The, the Final Push at home and the Thought Seas at home. Blood, Blood Chips, Thirst, and Dures. So we have access to the four good effects and the bad effect for both scenarios. Then on the creatures, we have Fortalacious Thunderdog, Flirt by Blood Tide Harvester, so just playing good, efficient two drops, two Sylvan Cariatids, which are, seem a bit weird in here, two, two One Crusher Giants, and one Bloodthirsty Adversary. And to finish the curve, in the three drops, four Idris Charm, four Gravia Trespasser, four Fable of the Mirror Breaker. As Dan just said, you're, you have the four Fable, you're protected. People won't say this deck is bad. Exactly. <laughs> And I agree that Sylvan Carriages are a little strange. To me, that says that David does not have confidence in the mana. Like, he's actually okay. built a pretty low-curve deck here. Like, there's nothing above three mana here, so you're not necessarily ramping. Yeah, I just had that same, that same thing. Like, why is the Cariatid casting here? Like, if you miss a land drop, you're casting your three drop? I mean, it's possible. Or not even miss a land drop, but you're probably playing a tap land at some point. Um, either a tap shock or you're, you're probably playing four yeah. of the Jun Triome in a deck like this. So I do like how, you know, now that we have access to Zeatora's Proving Ground, we can, with a little more confidence, just play Blood Tithe Harvester, Karyatid, and Riveteer's Charm and expect to have access to our mana most games. I'm not 100% sold on, like, specifically Karyatid and four copies of Tenacious Underdog. Four might be a bit too many because after the first one it starts to have really what's the there's a word for this. Diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. Oh, yeah, exactly. So the first one is a lot better than the second one, so I think that number could easily go down to three. And he does he did write something about the the Silan Kadiatir, saying as it's an amazing blocker for the one drops that eight one mana prowess creatures it's playing, the Xerox deck. Being a great blocker and a fixer and also allowing you to use Shun Charm as a draw three as early as possible. That makes sense. I would dispute the claim that it's a great blocker. And if anyone wants to test this theory, try blocking their prowess creature with your servant carried and watch and see what happens. Yeah, and see how long <laughs> it lasts. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think it's that good of a blocker. Like, I, I don't think the Silo Gabriati should be here, but who am I to judge the true gods of brewing? I mean, this is like a gameplay thing where, like, I, oftentimes when I cast Living Curated, my opponent will decline to attack with their Soul Scar Mage. But my conclusion from that is not that, oh, yes, yeah, Living Curated shut them down. It's that, oh, my opponent was too cowardly to attack. If they had attacked, I probably would not have blocked. No, no. They should always attack, and secondly, the only thing it shows is that their opponent has a crappy hand. Yeah, like, you should always just attack, and the, actually the onus is on the Sylvan character player to, like, find the courage to block, and often you just, like, can't risk it, you just can't afford to block. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know, I mean, maybe, maybe David has a different experience, uh, he's a bit of a bolder player. Block confidently and things will work out. <laughs> I do think he's making a good point here about, like, okay, the benefits of Riveteer's Charm or the Blitz ability on Tenacious Underdog really start to fade if you're not hitting your land drops. But you have Fable the Mirror Breakers, you have the Blood Token from Blood Tithe Harvester. I think you're okay on that front, personally. Yeah, four Fables is enough. Four Great Trespassers to attack Graveyard seems really good. Like, that card is, like, the opposite of... Diminishing returns. Once they start piling up, they get really annoying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is the Pioneer Tarmogoy, if, if there is such a thing. Um, graveyard Trespasser. Only because one more mana has much less stats. <laughs> <laughs> there's no solitude in this format, so maybe it maybe can work. I'm sold on Trespasser. I mean, the more I cast it, the more I'm like, well, this is a, a weak play, and then it just wins the game. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess it was just better than what the other players were playing. Maybe this is weak, but is, is it weak enough? And then you just win with the 3-3 all of a sudden. <laughs> all right, finally, the deck that I was excited to bring up since Grim Flare was being slandered. This is a <laughs> Jund... Delirium list from Spicy Chicken 420. It 5-0'd a few weeks back on May 9th. Full playset of Grim Flayers. Thank you very much, <laughs> Spicy Chicken 420, for your service. You just made them happy, that's all we needed. And you got a 5-0, so. Exactly. And they were actually were not playing Traverse the Ovum Wall. This is kind of a different take on, you know, what is the purpose of a delirium package. The Traverse package is saying, all right, I'm just pure control slash mid-range. I'm just going to get value, try to answer whatever the opponent's presenting, and Traverse will let me find the right answer at the cost of one additional mana. No big deal. And requiring a graveyard to not have an unplayable card. Well, I mean, you have to content yourself with getting a basic if that happens. So yeah, <laughs> you're in no rush to win if you're playing Traverse the Ovum Wall. Ensure your basic. This take on John Midrange without Traverse is, I think, a little more interested in just landing a Tarmogoyf-like creature and just clearing the path and just, you know, hitting them a few turns until they stop moving. Four Grim Flayers, four Blood Tithe Harvester, four Ziatora's Envoy. Uh, let me try to get that card from memory. Four mana, five for Trample, Blitz five. When it hits the opponent... You exile the top card if your deck if it costs less than the amount of damage it did, you can play it for free. And what if it doesn't cost less? Draw it. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Yeah. Exactly. It's exactly that. Never didn't have it. So this is a weird <laughs> little card, right? It kind of well, it does draw a card. Whenever it deals combat damage, it for sure gives you a card. You either are casting it for free, that's the best value. 
You're playing a land. You're allowed to play the land there. Actually, does that give you an extra land drop or no? No. Because it doesn't say you may put the land into play. It says you may play. Okay. So it's consuming your land drop. Gosh, that's a weird sentence. Okay. And then if you can't do either of those things, you just put it into your hand. So you're definitely getting a card off this. And then the blitz costs... Fami <laughs> just says blitz as if we know what blitz is. Of course, it's just I've never seen a card blitzed. <laughs> you didn't play the pro release. That was all about blitz. True, I did not. I, I just love that it has blitz five without a single word of text. Like it's what it does is so large that it doesn't have enough space to explain what this mechanic is. So you get to blitz is like dash, except that you have to sacrifice a creature at the end of the turn, and you get to draw a card when it dies. So. You're using it like a spell or like a ball lightning or skeletal, if yeah, you will. Yeah, alongside a cantrip. It's like a ball lightning with a draw attached. It's weird. Somewhat surprisingly, the blitz costs are all like more expensive than the regular costs. I think it's card dependent based on the fact if it's an aggressive card. I think there's only like two that have a cheaper blitz cost. Um, I just, when I saw the mechanic, I assumed that most of the blitz costs would be cheaper, but I guess that's more abusable. I mean, if this card was cheaper, like if this was a three mana ball blinding that hits for five that draws you two cards. Hmm. Yeah, that's still not good though. I mean, the thing is, like, it's cool, no, but it's not. It would a be good. Use it's of a like turn. opposite ball blinding. This is my problem with Zeotora's Envoy. It's just not a good use of a turn. Like, it's. It's not quite giving me enough for either four no, no. or five mana. I think the biggest problem is the five mana. I mean, as the problem is, if it you cast it for four mana and it dies, you got nothing. You cast it for four mana and it dies, at least you draw a card, right? Like, yeah. Unless it's exile, it's always a two for one. But then it's like a really weak cantrip. I don't know. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a weak play attached to a cantrip. But that's why they have to be expensive, right? Because value-wise... You got your effect plus something. Plus a draw. Spicy Chicken 420 was undeterred by all this, so they have the four Blood Tithe Harvester, <laughs> four Grim Flayers, four Zeatora's Envoy. Without any ramp whatsoever, they're just casting it fairly on turn five or four. Three Obnixilus the Adversary, a name we hear less and less these days. Oh boy, how the mighty have fallen. Um, four Fable of the Mirror Breaker. So these are the cards that are going to win the game. Oh, there's also a Gigantha in, in the Companion Zone. And the rest of the deck is Interactive Spells. Fatal Push, Strangle, Thought Seize, Abrupt Decay, Dreadbore, Riveteer's Charm, four Riveteer's Charm. So really, really, this is probably a Riveteer's Charm deck more than a Zeotor's Envoy deck, if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah. Every Riveteer's Charm deck is more of a Riveteer's Charm deck, just due to card quality. All right, so what do we learn from looking at these different configurations of Pioneer Riveteers decks? Um, play four Fable of the Mirror Raker. <laughs> and for Thoughts is four Fat Bush. So that they can't laugh at you. <laughs> yeah, like, if you all want to see the one constant, play four Fable, four Fat Bush, four Thoughts and then improvise the rest. <laughs> that's, like, that's your, that's your ground, groundwork. I think the reason they're playing Force Yatora Semboy is the fact they cannot run cards like Murderous Rider and what else are they losing to run? They cannot run any formal Blinks Walkers due to running Giganta. So they really, really believe in Giganta. <laughs> yeah, no Sori, no Chandra. Hmm, I suppose. I'm shocked that they are not playing the Thermogoyf of Pioneer. <laughs> the Graveyard Trespasser? 
Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that if you replace the Obnix list with Graveyard Trespasser, you would have a better deck. Pretty likely. Um, like, I think that's a constant, a universal constant. Especially because this deck has, like, eight creatures to sacrifice, and they're good two drops. Like, you don't want to sacrifice them. Starting to think that, you know, in a week or two, when the dust has finally settled and Obnixless has completely bottomed out, we should at least give the card another week and just try to figure out what went wrong. And there's got to be some good homes for this card, but right now we're just not seeing it. (laughs) Maybe it's the fact it's so expensive we don't even want to try. Like, the cost of trying it is too high, but yeah, maybe when it ends up disappearing and stops being a real card, we can treat it as a meme card and play with it. All right, so those are all Riveteer's Charm decks. Um, functional, perhaps. Spicy, not really. If we want spice, and we do love space, we're going to have to jump formats and look at a different card. Did you look at the last comment from David? Which is like the true spice that they would never have the balls to do. Uh, which one is that? Not good enough for a deck in modern, but hilarious line. Starfield of Nyx plus Riveteer's Ascendancy in play with a Sack Outlet, bring back Phantasma Limash over and over, each time copying Ascendancy, which hits a new what, once per turn trigger. Okay, you're gonna have to explain this. First, read Riveteer's Ascendancy, because I did not understand that line whatsoever. So, Riveteer's mana, enchantment. When you sacrifice a creature, you may return target creature card from, with lesser mana value from your graveyard to the battlefield tab. Do this only once each turn. So, we have Starfield of Nyx, which second ability makes that your enchantments become creatures. Second of which, Reveteer's Ascendancy, which makes it when you sacrifice a creature, once per turn get a new one that has a lesser mana value. Third, Goblin or Marment or something to sacrifice our creature. And with Phantasmal Image, we get it back, it copies Reveteer's Ascendancy, it becomes a 3-drop, you sacrifice it, it looks and then it gets back itself, and it comes back copying Reveteer's Ascendancy again. Because it was copying a 3-drop, so it was a 3-drop, but it's a real 2-drop, so you can get it back with itself. Okay, that, that's an insane line. <laughs> that's not good, that's not playable, that's borderline insanity. And it's so bad. Apart from turning Riveteer's Ascendancy into an enchantment, you could do this with just like normal creatures, but you would be limited by the once-per-turn clause, right? So yeah. if you had a phantasmal image copying rally, uh, anything with a higher mana yeah. cost, right? You could get its ETV once per turn, like once on your turn, once on your opponent's turn, once in your turn. So that's not awful. I mean, that's something. As long as you have a sacrifice outlet, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's mm. like a lot of value with like a goblin bombardment. But that takes us into four colors. So let's hold off on that for a sec, because let's start with a responsible deck. So what Riveteer's Ascendancy is... So Riveteer's Ascendancy in Modern, it's pretty amazing with stuff that sacrifices itself. Because always requiring a sack folder, a sack enabler makes you need extra cards in your synergy-based deck. But here, what if we just, I don't know, turn two, we played a Croxa or a Ragavandite, or maybe we just played a turn to Grist and it got countered, so we go turn 3, Riveteer's Ascendancy, and we evoke a Grief. When we evoke, that Grief is going to sacrifice itself, which means we're going to get its trigger, but then we can get a 3-drop or a creature that costs 3 or less from a graveyard straight into play. And that's when it gets tempting. Yeah, I mean, this is like a super exciting line. I think even during preview week, you were outlining this yeah. deck. 
Um, I know that when our we took our first crack at some Nuka Panadex, you had drawn up two different versions of this to potentially test. Now I think it's finally the week where we get to give Riveteer's Ascendancy its chance to prove itself. Yeah, we have arrived at the week where we can finally test this and I can feel not guilty for losing my play points. <laughs> so you've got self-sacrifice creatures, right? You've got... The Griefs, the Furies, and two Cruxes. I think the challenge will be having enough things for them to bring back. That's one of the challenges. I, I, and two, <laughs> you, like when you cast Riveteer's Ascendancy, that's three mana. You have to get paid off right away for that. Yeah. You will need or a cheap sacrifice, or a free evoke effect or such, or something to do pretty efficiently, because wasting three mana in modern for a Luna thing is pretty scary. Like... So ways to do that are to immediately play the Grief slash Fury, or to already have a creature on the battlefield that you can sacrifice. And I was wondering if we should look at cards like that. Sakura Tribe Elder, Dothy Voidwalker is one you have in your sideboard. Maybe that should be main deck. Maybe. Fullmator Mage is pretty good, as it's not only a pretty good thing to sacrifice and get back like a Croxa, but also a really good thing to get back. Like, you could get... Because it allows you to do stuff like... In your opponent's end step, like in your turn, you just play a full major mage, you sacrifice it to destroy something, get nothing back, grief, get back the fulminator, hold it on your opponent's upkeep, sacrifice the fulminator to get back a two drop or a one drop. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. I think the, the hardest part is going to be having that one or two drop because where in this line did we actually put the one or two drop into the graveyard? Like, how is it going to get there? Yeah, Crocs, I, right now the only we have is Crocs and Ragavan, and Ragavan tends to just die. It's a card that tends to fall into its own death pretty comfortably. Yeah. <laughs> it's a monkey lives dangerously. But the other card I want to maybe have to add is a teacher supplier. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. So, like, playing that on one will potentially just find another one-drop already, but if you yeah at any point kill that, you have a good one-drop to bring back that fuels your plan. I don't know. I mean, would you play that over the Ignoble Hierarchs? I think, yeah, I think that might be the spot. We don't need, really need acceleration. Maybe remove the Hierarchs and just play Force-Teacher Supplier outside the 4 now, you're also playing Grist the Hunger Tide in these lists. Um, Grist, allows, Grist works in a lot of ways. First, it's a sacrifice, so you can go stuff like if you have a creature on board, your Grist can minus two so, to get something back from your Ascendancy. And it's also a creature you can get back with Ascendancy. Hmm. Like, if you evoke a Grief, you can get back a Grist. Yeah, that is actually pretty sweet. So it and it also meals, so it just fills your graveyard. It just does mostly anything you want to do. And then see some item answer because it's both a great way to discard and also a great card to get back, so it works like double duty. Is it crazy to play something like uh, Wild Canter or Gold Town, the new one? I mean, these are one drops that will put themselves into the graveyard Problem and is help you. You just you don't need one drops that put themselves into the graveyard that much because. Yeah, I can't get them back, but what am I doing when I get them back, right? Wild Cantor might be more relevant because it doesn't have someone in Cygnus, so it means every single time you play like a Crocside pays for itself, like one mana. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they would be much better if they could get back a zero when they died, but I don't know what that would be. Oh yeah, but playing zero is just, I think it's just going over. I mean, wait, there is a zero we could get back. 
No, stop it. What, Dryad Arbor? <laughs> I'm not playing Asmo. Oh, Asmo. Okay. I like that a little better, actually. I like that better <laughs> than Dryad Arbor, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Just the fact you're gonna play four together into your graveyard consistently, and then I don't wanna play. Then you just transform into an Asmo deck. Can you make this an Asmo deck? Mm. You play Sheesher Brute, and you sacrifice it to the Asmo ability to get a new Asmo? Yeah. At a certain point, like, you you no longer have critical mass for your Riveteer's Ascendancy. <laughs> you just went too deep. Yeah, the the cards I would be looking to cut, like, from the sketch you've got in front of us, you, you have to cut some of the generic good cards, like, yeah. cut Renan 6, for example. I'm not cutting or... below the third Renan 6, because I'm not. <laughs> yeah. You cannot make me go below three Renan 6 in a, in a, in a, a Gruul deck. What about uh, like Dragon's Race Channeler or Unlucky Witness, speaking of one-drops? I mean, we don't have enough ways to sacrifice the Witness in this current version. But maybe, yeah, alongside Greased, maybe add the number of Goblin Bombardments and it gets a lot more interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm excited to see like how the testing goes with this. I mean, this is a, a deck we've had our eye on for a long time. Yeah. Not a deck, an interaction, we should say. But, <laughs> a concept. Yeah. Hopefully there's something here. Yeah, hope as well. Alright, I think with that said, anything else for Riveteers? No, for Riveteers it's just hope and wait. We're gonna give these concepts a try, we really, especially in modern, I really wanna try it. But there's not much else we can work with. Maybe add a tenacious underdog, just because. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's on theme. It's not bad, it draws you a card that is great from your graveyard if you meet it with like a teacher supplier. So I don't dislike it. So I think we'll leave it there for Jund Riveteers. We will, of course, let you know next week how our testing went. Speaking of which, it's that time again. Time for the flashback segment in which we tell you all about the decks we played this week and how they performed. Exactly, and to start with, we have David's beautiful Raffin Specialist. So version one of his decks from the Esper Week. And this is a version of his Esper Midrange featuring... Arfin Bessel, Shakespeare's Prodigy, Rafin's Informant, which is the two one that connives, so the two one looter that Davis loved from this set, alongside Graveyard Traspasser, Rafin, Obscure Interceptor, and one of Ohutai's Command. <laughs> What's not to love in an Ohutai's Command? So, Dan, how, yeah. how did David do with his one of Ohutai Command? Well, I should say that David played version 1 of the deck, and I played substantially the same list. I played version 1.1. He had suggested a couple tweaks, one of which was cutting the Ojutai's command (laughs) and cutting the Obscure Interceptor. So my version did not have those cards, but we played basically the same concept. David uh, had a bit of a rough time with it. I had a better results, and I actually streamed this league with commentary on our YouTube channel. So... If you want to see this deck in action, it's actually pretty sweet. You can see all the lines. Um, I've got like a pretty condensed replay with uh, me explaining different key moments. And we are trying to experiment a little bit with the YouTube channel, so definitely go check out that out. We'll put a link in the episode description here for this podcast, and we'd love to get your feedback on how these different formats are helpful or not for you. That being said, uh, the lists. Well, David's League went 1-4, and four. mine was 3-2. and two. Um, I liked the deck quite a bit. I felt like it was just like a little bit unpolished in the mana base specifically. 
David, I think, just got a little bit unlucky also with Mano, although in his case, he was just like flooding out in crucial game threes against Mono Blue and Prowess. Yeah, that those games were really pretty close, pretty close value-wise, right? It seemed to be the case. We both drew the same conclusions to a great extent. Namely, we really liked Rafine. Rafine was super impressive, and we also really were impressed by the specific interaction of Extraction Specialist and Archfiend Vessel. The idea here being that, you know, Extraction Specialist can rescue a one or a two drop, and that, that creature does not get to attack or block until the Specialist is gone. Archfiend's Vessel gets around that because it immediately sacrifices itself to make a demon, so you end up for just three mana, you end up getting a 3-2 lifelink and a 5-5 demon, and you've got cards in your deck that like distribute plus one plus one counters. You know, Rafine does that. I was playing Luminarch Aspirant in my build. That was a tweak that David suggested after his league. Um, so that was like a very impressive sequence. And then the rest of the deck was just a lot of filler. Like it wasn't terrible filler, it was okay. I mean, cards like Rafine's Informant, Jace Friend's Prodigy, these are here to help you put the cards into the graveyard, put the vessel into the graveyard. They work with the extraction specialists so that, you know, they give you a little bit of value even if they have a pacifism effect working on them. But there's nothing super special going on here with the supporting cards. The end result is that you're actually kind of like a tap-out aggro deck you know i know we called it mid-range when we were conceiving of the deck but in practice i really wanted to be adding to the battlefield every single turn playing a tap land really hurt um so like surprisingly enough the rafine's tower the triome was like not very good here even um some of the conditional lands like deserted beach uh, was terrible for me i kept getting like absolutely punished by deserted beach because deserted beach is which one? Deserted Beach is the slow land from uh, Midnight Hunt. It comes oh, okay. untapped if it's your third land or later. And I would often just, I would need to have white mana on turn two, right? I have four Luminarch Aspirants, four Rafine's Informant. I look at my hand, it's got a white land, but the white land is Deserted Beach or Fable Passage. And I'm like, this is, this is terrible. Yeah, it was really punishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like so i play it tapped but that means i didn't play my thoughts on turn one so it was just like i mean you can see this on the youtube but it's just, again and again i keep getting like these weirdly awkward hands punished by the lands exactly so i think that given what we've learned from playing the deck we should rebuild the mana base to copy like a shock pathway concept that winota uses successfully like this is actually more of a winota deck that happens to have a little bit of interaction and value you get to play Thoughtseize and Push, that's cool, um, but you're still trying to win the game by getting, you know, three and four power creatures down early. I think, like, this is something we were discussing yesterday on stream while I was playing the Esper deck I'm going to talk later. The biggest problem with Rafine is the fact that it's, man, it's Esper. Yeah, I mean, you you definitely feel that in Pioneer probably more so than Modern, yeah. although we'll see that your list also didn't have <laughs> the best time. Like, there isn't really a blue card that you want here. I know you you and David talked about Benthic Biomancer last time. I think that's an interesting suggestion, but it's t it was tough. It was tough getting the mana on color, so I'm not eager to, like, add more blue to the deck. Rafin feels like a, such an awesome card, and then they just added the blue for some reason, and... It's really hard to justify the blue in a Rafin deck. <laughs> I think Ledger Shredder is the card that we should try. 
Dave is like not quite sold on it being the right fit here. I mean, <laughs> there were a couple times where I played Rafine's Informant and my opponent played Ledger Shredder and <laughs> we had a good clean stare down. We're like, boy, I, I really wish that I had discarded a non-land so that I would have a 3-2 instead of a 2-1 right now. Um, but that being said, like this deck, at least the version I played with Luminarch Aspirants, had a lot of ways to grow creatures. I mean, Rafine was super impressive at distributing counters. Wandering Emperor did that too. So I actually found that the aggro plan was like not terrible here. Things that we didn't like, uh, I think both David and myself found that Extraction Specialist without a target was kind of sad. And this deck was not guaranteed to have a target, especially if, you know, as soon as you play a Grave uh, Archfiend's Vessel, they're like, oh, graveyard deck. Bring in the unlicensed hearths. Bring in all the stuff. You know, you're never going to get your graveyard ever again. And it just gets hit. Like, and, on the, and your plan, on your collection specialist plan just gets hit totally unexpectedly. Maybe four is a bit too many. That's the takeout. I wouldn't cut the specialists, I mean, because those are actually one of the best lines, but... You just cut the shade so they don't bring in as much graveyard <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You cut the cards that are a little bit weaker, like Jace, like maybe some of the Archfiend's Vessels, so that if they do take a turn off to attack your graveyard, you punish them yeah. by you know pressuring their life total. So David actually has a, a third version, version 2.0. I played version 1.1, we might say. Version 2.0 actually makes some progress on some of these problems we, we identified. So he adds four blood-soaked champion as an aggressive one-drop. So now we're actually really trying to pressure the life total. He also adds four Rafalia Guardian of Thraben. And to do this, we're no longer playing Thoughtseize, right? Actually, Thoughtseize, Thoughtseize was not so good in these lists. Maybe the metagame has shifted a little bit. Um, we're just trying to get on board quickly. Blood-soaked champion also comes out of the graveyard nicely, so you're getting a little more out of your incidental looting from Rafine and her informant. Uh, and in order to make room for all that, you had to trim like the Wandering Emperors because those are not so good with Thalia. Yeah, that's our Wandering Emperor at five is not nearly as good as it's at four. Exactly. I did notice that David has proposed going up to a full playset of Rafine. Um, we only played three in our builds, and I would love to have the fourth. Every time I drew it, I was very impressed. So I think this this version 2.0 is worth another try. I'll probably test it this week. Okay, so it seems like the advancement. Yeah. I think that's pretty close to what I was getting for in Modern, right? Even say, um, David said himself, this is pretty close to what Moore was discussing the first episode, as I thought the best way to use this was... Well, first of all, Extraction Specialist is amazing when your 2-drops have to die in your, for your opponent to play. Mm -hmm. Because they're going to kill your 2-drops. You don't need to discard them or mill them in any way, shape, or form. They're going to reach the graveyard on its own terms. <laughs> if only Ragavan were blue. If only Ragavan <laughs> was not blue, but any color of Esper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe Dothy Voidwalker in a Rafine deck. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's sort of a block owl. So, should we jump to modern? Yeah, I want to hear about this modern take on Rafine. So what I did was, it all started based on the fact that I wanted a chunky Esper Sentinel. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, I had already done that with Broadback, so it's some true that without red. And I went ahead and grabbed what I consider to be some of the most taxing creatures that I can play on Corpse. So I have Tide Hollow Scholar, Kaitzel Freebooter, Talia Guardian of Thraven, and Esper Sentinel, alongside for Solitude, for Grief, and for Ephemerates. 
and Travel Inspector, because why not? And added four of each to that. Of course, this is as I already deck list everybody. I have four other bias as well. And the plan was simple. Turn 1 is percentile, turn 2 Talia, turn 3 Rafin, attack for 5. Easy. <laughs> and when it worked, the deck felt, felt amazing. I went 3 2 3 2, I think, or it was like 3 2 2 3 1 0. Oh. So it was like a 7 5. It was a positive record, but barely. So once again, we're an Orzov deck, and Rafin is the only blue card. Yeah, I have pretty of blue my cyborg because special hate bears like meddling mage really work with Rafin. An extraction specialist. Oh, interesting. But besides that, it's yeah, it's an Orzov deck in its essence. So for those of you who have not played with Rafin or have not seen it in play, it does a really astonishing thing whenever you attack. It lets you draw multiple cards. And then it potentially grows one of your creatures by like several points of power at a time, depending on what you discard. And I didn't really appreciate that until like I was a couple of games in. Okay, I, it didn't really compute that I'm actually going to draw three cards mid-combat. You know, maybe I'll find something. <laughs> I went like sometimes I went like draw six, and it's like plus four, plus four in combat. That's a lot. Yeah. So like. Having anything at flash speed actually becomes quite nice with Rafine. So you've got Solitudes here, uh, you've got Ephemerate, you could even Vial in a 3-drop if you had the Vial set appropriately. I even got to do the Strangler Flicker with Synergy, that was what made me fall in love with Magicka the first time, so I just, I'm happy whenever I can do Flicker with Plus Ways and Strangler. Did you find that, uh, I mean, okay, <laughs> how secure is Rafine's spot in the deck, assuming that the mana is not an issue? Like, was it one of your more powerful cards? No, Rafin was one of my most powerful cards. The least powerful cards, I think, were... Well, I, I, I was playing... um, What's the name of this card? Unsettled Mariner, as a way to justify blue. And it got cut mm. for Freebooter almost immediately after the first league. Oh, really? And then Grief is on the weaker terms, because you only have Ephemerate. And Grief is only good if you're doing something really unfair, or we are really get, or we are doing the scam play of turn one Grief. Hmm. Yeah, I noticed you cannot pitch a Wasteland Strangler to a green. <laughs> I know, I, don't, don't remind me of that. Just makes me want to cry. I mean, poor Shant, I was playing against a Shant player that just stabilized the board. They were in a good spot. They had like double Tarmogoy Falili, and I had a Yorion, an Ephemerate, a Strangler, and I top deck Flicker Wisp. So I go like Flicker Wisp or Tarmogoy, Ephemerate my Yorion, Bring back Strangler, get minus three, minus three on your... I think it was like a Season Pyromancer, send your Tarmogoyf to the graveyard, exile Flicker with a Strangler again, and just get rid of your Tarmogoyf and your Lily. Oh my god. <laughs> what? And it was like one of the most insane turns. That doesn't even seem possible, that sounds like... Alright, so I mean, this is the classic combo, Wasteland Strangler... Processing a card out of the blink zone into the graveyard, so it's like a clean two for one there. Plus, it also kills something else, and you just did that twice in one sequence with Yorian. Yeah, yeah. I, I just started killing Tarmogoyf and such. I was such a devastating turn. It reminded me of why I played Taxes when I started playing. <laughs> the dream. So you do have to build this deck like fairly disruptive. You have four Tidehold Scholars, three Kite Sailor Freebooters, and four Griefs. So you're actually going after their hand and their mana. You've got the four Esper Sentinels, the four Thalia, Guardian of Thraben. The biggest problem with the deck was not having efficient one-drops besides Esper Sentinel, because Travel Inspector 
is so much worse. I did get five clues uh, in a single game, though, and it was quite good. Because anything that ma in a Rafint deck, anything that gives you card advantage is worth a lot more. Because you then can transform that virtual card advantage, that real card advantage, because even if you have three lands in hand, Rafint is going to help you transform it into material eventually. So raw card advantage is worth a lot more once you know you have a pretty efficient loot effect eventually. So I don't think of taxes as being a deck capable of drawing cards. You know, they'll sacrifice silent clearings maybe, but if your taxes deck is suddenly looting away like three cards at a time, that's, that's extremely powerful. Yeah. Makes me wonder if, you know, is there another card draw option we should be looking at? Like is Dark Confidence? I had the same thought, but I couldn't think of any. Maybe Dark Confidence is what I should be doing instead of Brief. Like, this deck lacks proactive good play, so maybe that's the way. Extraction Specialist was amazing. Bial on three, where Extraction Specialist on the Bial, and you're just playing hate bears that they have to kill, gets really annoying really fast. Hmm. Okay. So you liked the Specialist, yeah. even though you weren't playing any dedicated synergies per se. You're just trying to get back a card. It's just a good animator for the deck. Esper Sentinel was amazing. Like, I had an opponent once I went through an Esper Sentinel, turn to Talia, turn 3 Rafin, and they used 3 mana to try and terminate my Rafin. To, to do what to your. Terminate. So, oh, okay. I, but here's the important part I drew a card from Esper Sentinel, and they didn't have mana to pay the ward. Oh my god. <laughs> so it was like a self inflicted 3 for 1 on my side. Wow. It was just so sad. <laughs> yeah so my takeaway from our initial testing is that Rafine is like surprisingly great Rafine, every, every single time I cast Rafine I was happy with it the only problem with Rafine is the cost the esper color in the cost it feels like a solvable problem like maybe in taxes we don't want to solve the problem but there could be a deck that doesn't have these mana problems yeah <laughs> Maybe that's the clue all along. It is stronger when you attack immediately after casting Rafine, but even in the games where I couldn't do that. Oh yeah, just having it on board. Yeah, it just, you know, attack next turn, that's fine. It's still looting, it's still growing. Also, a 1-4 flyer is a pretty decent body. Like, it's really gonna hold the board. Yeah, more so in Pioneer. Pioneer has a lot of flyers right now, and Rafine did a great job. Yeah. Contesting the battlefield there, so uh, I give great review to Rafine, like A minus. If we can solve the mana, maybe even higher. Hmm. The surrounding shell, I'm gonna give a lower grade to, at least for the Pioneer build, but I actually I think that some of these changes that David has proposed for being a little more aggressive, a little less graveyard reliant, um, could make the deck function, you know, at least the deck I played, yeah. a little more like a, a Good aggressive deck. Maybe I should be playing stuff like Stoneforge Mystic because it's good on its own, or maybe I should just go insane and play Dark Confident in my Soldier deck and deal with the consequences of my own actions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will see. <laughs> All right, so I think we will leave it there. Again, check out our YouTube channel if you want to see uh, the Pioneer Esper Rafine deck in action and let us know what you think. Exactly. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening and hope you have a nice night. Bye bye! Decklists for this episode can be viewed at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in on Friday for a look at the latest technology from Pioneer, plus new brews with Extraction Specialist. 
Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you like what we do, you can join our community at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye.